It says, onward to the prize before us, soon his beauty will behold. Soon the pearly gates will open, and we shall tread the streets of gold. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Beautiful song. Our scripture this morning comes from Ecclesiastes, the 8th chapter, and the 11th verse. Reading from the King James Version, it says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. In other words, we have to walk with the Lord every minute of every day. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Morning, happy Sabbath. It's good to see everybody. There's some faces we haven't seen in a while. Praise the Lord that you're here. We've got some Highland students here. Glad to see you and <clears throat> everyone else. So uh, we've been going through a series of messages on the sanctuary, and this is part four. Um, no better way, part four. And we'll do a review. So if you haven't been here for the previous messages, it's really okay. You're not going to miss anything. I think you'll be uh, blessed today. But I'd like to pray before we start. Father, as we open your word um, this morning, we ask that you would bless it and that it would not return unto you void, but that our hearts and our minds would be open. Just pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak through me today. Thank you for each person that's here, divine appointments, each one. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we live in an evil, evil world, and every day, every day we see more and more of it unleashed uh, in society all over the world, not just here in America. Uh, men and women, young and old, each one driven by the selfish desires of Satan, because Satan's desire is to overthrow God's people. If you want to hurt someone, hurt their children, right? And God considers each one of you, his children, precious to him, so precious that he died for you. And so Satan is wanting to destroy people because in doing that, he really hurts um, the arch enemy, Satan. And so it's, you know, it's easy or easily recognized that when you look at the things that are happening, that the thoughts and intents of man's heart is getting increasingly evil. You could say, as the scripture did, uh, evil continuously. We're, we're seeing that. We're getting very near to the end. And you know that exposure to sin breeds familiarization. You know, what was heinous uh, the first time you saw it, um, is commonplace now. And that's actually a dangerous thing. It's not a good thing because it breeds familiarization and then a cold heart. And then eventually society accepts this evil. And that's happened. It's happened in many regards. And we got to be careful that we protect our, our hearts from that happening. We don't want that to happen. So, you know, the message in the sanctuary, particularly this message and the next one, uh, which is probably the, the final one, I'm not 100% sure, but particularly this message and the next, um, 
we can make a present day application and we can see uh, that it's very important for us. uh, The message today and the next one. Now in Romans 15, 4 and in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it clearly spells out that the things that happened in the Old Testament are for our admonition, for our learning. Um, They're not for our entertainment. Uh, They're not just... It's not just good reading, and it is good reading, Um, and it can be entertaining. You know, it's like, wow, you know, and you could visualize those things. And but it's not just for that. It's for our learning, for our admonition to prepare us uh, for what lies ahead to for us to draw lessons from common day practical lessons that um, allow us, no matter what our age is, to make uh, a personal application and say, how does this teach me something? How does it affect me? Um, what changes do I need to make um, to be within God's will? Romans 15, 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and the comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I want to have hope. I want to have more hope. Every day more hope. And the Scriptures, it says are written for our comfort as well. Not only hope, but comfort. Written for our learning, our comfort, our hope. Uh, In early writing 63, it says, There are many precious truths contained in God's word, but it is present truth that the flock needs now. Do you agree with that? If you think about the story of Noah... Um, He was the preacher, a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. And what was going to happen, young people? Tell me, what was going to happen? What was Moses preaching about? I mean, Noah? The flood, exactly. That was present truth. So we know from Bible prophecy and other scriptures that certain things are coming and they're coming soon. Those are the things we need to be talking about. That's present truth. And so that's what the flock needs. It says, uh, she goes on, she says, I have seen the danger of messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell on subjects that are not calculated to unite the flock and sanctify the soul. So uh, I bring this message to you. Um, I hope that it is a blessing. I hope that uh, you can see that it does apply to us today, our day. Psalm 77, 13 and 14 says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders, that has declared thy strength among the people. Really two verses that are very powerful. Because God is saying, if you want to know how I'm dealing with sin and the plan of redemption, the story of redemption, go to the sanctuary. You'll see how great I am. You'll see my wonders there. You'll see my strength among my people. So that's what we're trying to do in this series. So God's method of dealing with sin found in the sanctuary. And ultimately, sin is the reason that we sit here today. You realize that, right? If not, we would be in the heavenly choir, worshiping God face to face, singing great hymns, be no sins to confess. Sin is the reason that we're here. The reason that we're here. I hope it's the only reason that you're here. Uh, I shouldn't say that. Not the only reason that you're here, but uh, to worship God, to recognize him as creator, 
uh, to come in fellowship with him, to pray to him. But ultimately, sin is the reason we're here. God is great, and that is revealed in many ways, but it's certainly revealed in the sanctuary. If we're looking for it, we'll see that. And because of these things, there's no better way than God's way of demonstrating the plan of salvation. And he's chosen to do that in the sanctuary. Now, that's not the clearest picture, but it's the best picture I could get um, with permission. Um, So if you notice here, and this is kind of starting the review, if you notice here, you see the altar of burnt sacrifice, that's in the courtyard. And then the next apartment, there are three articles of furniture there. We'll talk about those briefly. And then there's the most holy places, one article of furniture. Okay? So the day by day, the repentant sinner brought his or her sacrifice to the door of the tabernacle and placing his hand on the victim's head, confessed his sins. And in doing that, in figure, transferred his sin to that innocent animal. The animal was then slain by the sinner, not by the priest, by the sinner. And we know from Scripture, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. So that... That should give us a hint of why that was necessary. And in Leviticus 17.11, the Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. And what what we're examining is a transfer of sin and guilt from the sinner to the innocent animal, to the blood, and then to the sanctuary. Does do you understand that? Is that easy enough for everybody? Young people, if not, just say, I don't get it. So the blood represents the forfeited life of the transgressor, the sinner. Right? Because the wages of sin is? Okay. And so the guilt of the victim that the victim bore was then transferred to that animal and then to the blood and then um, the priest takes over at that point. Okay? And the priest represents who? Represents Jesus. Very good. The innocent animal represented? Jesus. Excellent. And, and think about this. The Lord wants us to understand the plan of salvation. So he makes it simple enough for a young child to understand. And also for the most intellectual person to get a deep blessing from. Because you can go very, very deep uh, in the study of the sanctuary. So by this ceremony, this process, sin was through the blood transferred in figure to the sanctuary. So each one of those animals was a type of Christ. John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who? Takes away the sin of the world. Okay? So it was a type of Jesus. And the priest was there to minister on behalf of the repentant sinner. A, re- a sinner that is exercising faith. Those are two very important words. Faith and repentance. Because they go together. So the priest carried the blood of the animal into the sanctuary. Priest was a type of Christ. And he represented Jesus, our high priest. So we discussed previously this process. The the sinner coming to the courtyard of the tabernacle with that spotless lamb. And then the sin is transferred. 
So remember that sin demands, what is it? It demands the life of the transgressor. And that can't be changed. That couldn't be changed because if it could have been changed, God would have changed it. Because the Bible says his way is in the sanctuary. And there's no better way of dealing with sin than the way God has done, uh, chosen to deal with it. He couldn't change his law. If he could, he would have. But transgression demands the life of the transgressor. So it's important to remember that by bringing the animal to the courtyard um, and sacrificing it, doing it exactly the way it needed to be done, in no way did it buy atonement. And what does that word atonement mean? Do you remember? At one mint. Thank you, Jeannie. At one mint. So sin has separated us from our God, the Bible says. So we're no longer at one with him. But this process in the sanctuary is a process of atonement or at one So when the sinner brought that animal, confessed the sin, cut the throat of the animal, it did not buy atonement. It didn't buy atonement. All it did was demonstrate faith. Because you did not have to go to the courtyard with an animal and confess your sins. You could have said, I'm not going there. It, it, it irks me. I don't like it. It's, I'm not doing it. And no one was going to drag you by the heels to the courtyard to do that. So when a person did that, they were demonstrating and exercising faith in God, in his system, in Jesus. Does that make sense? Does not buy anything. When you confess your sins privately, and I hope you do, get on your knees, confess your sins. Nobody knows you're doing that. You are exercising faith. You are. It's all they did. It was a different process because they were pointing to Jesus. We're now looking back at Jesus. See what he did. So grace is never purchased. I want us to recognize that. Grace is never purchased, but it is given by exercising faith. Through faith, we receive grace. So let's look at a couple of slides as we kind of review this. So um, when you go into that holy place, let me back up because there's some people that haven't been here. <clears throat> you walk into this first apartment here. That's the holy place. And in there, there's three pieces of furniture. One is the table of showbread. And as you walked in, it was on the right And it represents Jesus, the bread of life, his word. Um, It it actually translates the bread of presentation. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, literal bread that you eat, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There's coming a time when people will desire to hear the plain truth. They'll have a hunger for present truth, for God's word, and they will not be able to find it. I don't know exactly what that looks like, if Bibles will be taken away or if it's a spiritual thing that happens, but we can know that that's true. And so the table of showbread represents Jesus, and he is the bread of life in his word. And then on the opposite side, on the left side, seven-branch candlestick, 
Jesus, the light of the world. Okay, um, an amazing uh, piece of, of spiritual furniture. 75 and a half pounds of pure gold. The whole thing is one solid piece. Just amazing. Uh, the olive oil was the fuel source. It was never allowed to be extinguished. You know, as they trimmed the lamps, you know, you might have had one or two out, but it was always lit at, at some point. And it was the only source of light. There were no windows in there. The curtains were not open. They were closed. And from Psalm 119:105, we recognize that that also represents God's word. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then straight ahead, if you walked into the holy place, straight ahead against the, the veil of the curtain that separated the holy from the most holy is the altar of incense. And it represents the righteousness of Christ mingled with the prayers of the faithful. And so the curtain... If you could, let me go back to that picture. That first slide, right there. That curtain did not go all the way to the top. So what happened when the priest came in with a, uh, an equal mixture of three spices, as God told them, gave them the recipe. He put those spices on that altar of incense. What happened to that smoke? Thank you. Up and over into the most holy place. And on top of the ark was the mercy seat. And God's presence was the Shekinah glory between the two cherubim on the top of the mercy seat. So that smoke representing your prayers mingled with the righteousness of Jesus wafted up over the curtain where you couldn't go, the priest couldn't go, and into the presence of God. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot to that, um, that that we could spend time on. But, you know, uh, when the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? He told them to pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Because it's the righteousness of Jesus that allows the Holy Spirit to take our uh, words that are all messed up, line them up nice, and then because of Jesus, those, that, those prayers are presented to to God the Father. So when you're teaching a young person to pray, use the biblical example. Pray to God the Father and end your prayer in Jesus' name. Because oftentimes you'll hear children and some adults, they'll pray to Jesus, dear Jesus. Well, that's not the model that God, that Jesus gave. He said, pray to the Father in my name. And it's represented here in the sanctuary when we, when we go to the altar of incense. Okay, so we're going to enter into the most holy place now and discover the lessons there. So this is the only item that was in the most holy place. And what is it called? The Ark of the Covenant. That's right. And on the top was the mercy seat. And it contained what? Help me out. Three things. The, the, the tables of stone with the Ten Commandments. And what else? Aaron's rod that budded and, and the manna. Very good, very good. So the manna represents God's word. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Um, and the scriptures testify of Jesus, don't they? He said that. Search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. Okay, so the manna was to be gathered every morning before the sun came up. Otherwise, it what? It spoiled. It melted, right? 
So there's a lesson there, a simple lesson. When you get up, get into God's word. Because, because if you wait too long, you'll end up busy and you'll miss that blessing. Because the manna was a blessing. You know, it, it, was, uh, it had everything a body needed. Right? You, you don't think that God left something out and said, yeah, have the man. I'm really sorry, but you're missing vitamin this and vitamin that. But it had everything. It had all the protein, all the things that they needed. And so they missed a blessing if they slept in. And the bread represents God's word. So if we, if we get up and we go about our day without getting into God's word early, we're going to miss a blessing. So we should feed on God's word early before we begin our day. And that can be a challenge. Take it from me. Aaron's rod that budded. So from Numbers chapter 16, it, it represents, it's really a testimony condemning rebellion. If you read that story, uh, rebellion against God's law and his ways, a, a rebellion against God's people, uh, and it's assurance that trusting in God and his ways keeps us connected with him, keeps us safe. So you read that story, read Numbers chapter 16, and you'll, you'll be able to pull those things out. Okay, and then the tables of stone, they were written by Moses? Who were they written by? The finger of God, and they were written in stone. So there's some serious symbolism there, right? The permanence of that. Go to a cemetery where a gravestone has been engraved and take a rag and maybe some Ajax and try to rub that off. It's not coming off. So when, we, when God uses his finger to engrave stone with the Ten Commandments, it's indicating the permanence of God's law. It will not be changed. No one's taking a chisel and, and changing the Fourth Commandment or any other commandment. So we have the tables of stone written by the finger of God. Um, they're everlasting. It speaks of the perpetuity of the law. It's a transcript of God's character and his government. If you want to know how God's government functions, just look at the Ten Commandments. And the commandments, if you were to sum them up in one four-letter word, what would it be? Love. His government is a government of love. His law is a law of love, of liberty, and liberty there means freedom. And, and think about that, how simple that is, young people. Um, if you lie and you get caught, there's you know, penalties, you know, you're going to get punished, and you have this sick feeling in your stomach. But if you take God's law and you're honest, you're free. It's the law of liberty. Don't steal and you'll be free. If you steal, you're going to be afraid. If you speed, you've got to be worried, etc., etc. It's a law of liberty, and it's a wonderful thing to be, you know, just you don't have any worries because you're not breaking God's law, his law of love. And also, it's only through Jesus that we get forgiveness from sin. It's only through him that we have the hope of eternal life. And it's not through changing God's law. And people do that. They have manipulated God's law in their minds. This doesn't really matter. Right? And then there's, there are uh, Christian institutions, one that I grew up in, that has come right out and said, we've, done, we've made a change. We've taken commandments out completely, graven images, we've, those got to go, and, 
and we've changed the Sabbath and we took the last commandment and we split it in two. And so they claim to have made the change, but did they really change God's law? Because no one has the authority to do that because his, change, his law is everlasting. So what was the purpose of the ministry of the high priest in the most holy place? What did it signify? And what meaning does it have for us living today? So grab a Bible there if you have yours or grab one in the pew. Go to Leviticus 23. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And young people, you can do that too, you know. There's Bibles in the pews there. The Lord has something for you today. I hope you'll take the time to open the Bible. Go to Leviticus chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 24. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation. Verse 27. Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of what? Atonement. And what does that word atonement mean? At one minute. Very good. It shall be an holy convocation unto you. That word convocation is gathering. Okay. And ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no work in the same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For, whose, for whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. Verse 32, it shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest. And ye shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even from even to even shall ye celebrate your Sabbath. So once a year on the day of atonement, the sanctuary came into play in the most holy place where the ark is found. So on the first day, now catch these numbers, on the first day of the seventh month, we just read it, came the blowing of trumpets. Blowing of trumpets was a declaration to the people on the 10th day of this month, nine days later, is the day of atonement you need to prepare. That's what the blowing of trumpets on the first day of the seventh month because the day of atonement was always on the 10th day of the seventh month. Okay, we got that? And so the days leading up to and including the Day of Atonement were vital for God's people. They had to, as the Bible said there, I believe twice, they were to afflict their souls. We're going to talk about that. So on that one day, the Day of Atonement, so now it is the 10th day of the seventh month. They blew the trumpets nine days ago. We've been making preparation. We're God's people uh, in Israel, let's pretend. And now it's the 10th day of the seventh month. And the high priest is responsible for the cleansing of the sanctuary. And so he goes into the most holy place. And the goal is to cleanse the guilt and the sin transferred in 359 days. Because their year was 360 days. So we're on the 360th day of this calendar it's the day of atonement and the high priest 
was the one responsible for this cleansing. And if you read Leviticus 23, you'll see that Aaron at the time, high priest, had to go through a process where he was cleansed. He had to bathe, put on certain undergarments and outer garments. He had to kill an animal for his sin and the sin of his family. Because when he went into the most holy place, if he hadn't done that, he would not survive. Okay, so... uh, He was responsible. It was a day of judgment. Now, this is from the Jewish Encyclopedia. The Day of Atonement, which we see on the calendar, it's called Yom Kippur. Okay? It was a day of abstention, fasting, and prayer, meditation, introspection, soul-searching, and repentance. The Jewish people understood what it meant to afflict one's soul. And it was absolutely necessary... For the sanctuary to be cleansed of their sins. See, the sanctuary is getting cleansed. But of whose sins will they be cleansed? Only those that did this. Everyone else is cut off. And that word translates destroyed. Because that ultimately is what happens in the end. So it was the holiest day of the year. Uh, The Sabbath of Sabbaths. And the usual attire for that day was white because that represented the righteousness of Jesus and his purity. And so at the end of the day, the sins of God's people were either confessed, forgiven, renounced, or unconfessed, unforgiven, and cherished. Because to not confess a sin and give it to Christ to deal with is to cherish that sin. Does that make sense? If I don't give it to the Lord, I'm holding on to it. And in doing that, I'm cherishing it. When I was in India, we gave uh, the the Telugu-speaking people Bibles in Telugu. They cost us a dollar. They grabbed those Bibles, and they went like this, and they cried. They cherished them. They They were so, so important to them. And so if we don't surrender that sin to the Lord through confession and repentance, we're cherishing it. We're holding on to them. So to refuse to afflict one's soul was a rejection of Jesus himself and a rejection of the process of dealing with sin, of atonement, of uh, reconciliation. All of those words come into play. If we didn't do that, If they didn't do that, if we don't do that, we're actually rejecting Jesus because we are not cooperating with him in the work that he's doing. And he's blotting out sin. That's what he's doing right now. That's what he was doing on the Day of Atonement. The high priest was representing Jesus doing that. Because we're rejecting the cleansing work of our high priest, Jesus. And so what ends up happening is anyone that does that bears the weight of their own guilt and sin. So according to the Jewish Encyclopedia, Volume 2, page 286, the Israelites recognize the Day of Atonement as the day in which it is determined who shall live and who shall die. And if you think about that, it's very true. Um, When we make a present-day antitypical application For the Day of Atonement. If we 
cooperate with Jesus, we will have eternal life. Praise the Lord, right? Okay, good. So we're living in the antitypical day of atonement. Now, this would be another study or two at least, um, which began October 22nd, 1844. And, and we know that by a study of the 2300 days in Daniel 8, 14, um, began in 457 B.C., ended October 22nd, 1844. At that time, Jesus went from the holy place where he was ministering to the most holy place, which began the antitypical day of atonement, where the record books are being looked at. See, when the, when the high priest went into the most holy place, representing Jesus, he wanted to apply the blood of Jesus for every person outside. Uh, in the foyer, if you go out the door to the right, there's a table, and I've put a, a poster out there that Larry got for me. <clears throat> I want you to look at that. Is it perfect? No. You probably could find fault with it. Um, but you're going to see the tents, uh, all the tribes of the nation of Israel, right? Over a million people out there. They were about a mile and a half, uh, between a half and a mile and a half away from the, the sanctuary. It's a lot of people, a lot of tents. And the person would have to take that innocent animal and walk a distance. Everyone would see that. It wasn't something that you could hide. You had to walk past lots of people. It was a humiliating experience, intentionally humiliating. And so take time, look at that out there, and you'll get a picture for um, you know, what went on and how detailed God was in, in planning this thing. So I want to encourage you to look at that. So he's, he's involved in this work of blotting out sin. Now go to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16. And we're going to uh, go to verse 5 to begin with. And let's actually back up. Um, let's go to verse 3. Are you there? It says, Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place. Now that Aaron's the high priest. And uh, with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh. And he shall be girded with a linen girdle and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh with water and so put them on. So I wanted to share that's part of his preparation. And then verse 5 and he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two what? Kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for who? Himself to make atonement for himself and for his house. This prepares Aaron for entrance in to the presence of God. Very serious thing. Verse 7. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. That word scapegoat is azazel, azazel with an A, A Z, A Z E L. And it means adversary antagonist. It is referring to Satan very clearly. But there are those out in the Christian community that want you to believe that. The scapegoat is Jesus. Sorry. 
It's not. Jesus is not an antagonist, and he is not an adversary. Speaking of Jesus. So Aaron's casting lots for two goats, one for the Lord, one for the scapegoat that represents Satan. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord. Notice this, to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full, notice this, take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within within the veil. So he's going into the most holy place. He's got a censer. And he has put hot coals in it from off the altar. He's got a fistful of incense, not just any incense. Now look at verse 13. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may what? Cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. See, that cloud of smoke representing the, the righteousness of Jesus protected him from the immediate presence of God and his, and his certain death. It really is just a powerful picture of how holy God is. Because you know that, you know that Aaron had confessed his sins and he washed his, his skin and he put on the special clothing, but that was not enough. There had to be um, a, a separation, a barrier, a protection Representing the righteousness of Jesus. All right, let's uh, go on. Let's go to verse 16. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all of their sins. And so shall he do it for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now there's three words that the Bible uses intentionally. God doesn't do anything, you know, Carelessly. Every word is in here on purpose. Uncleanness. This is verse 16. Uncleanness, transgression, and sins. I believe in part because he wants to make sure that everything a person could do wrong is included. Uncleanness, transgression, sins. All there. You don't have to worry that there's something that you did that God is not able to blot out. And so he's very intentional. Verse 17, And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle, verse 19, of the blood upon, which, upon it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanliness of what? The children of Israel. Very good. And when he has made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar 
He shall bring the live goat. This is very important. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. This is the scapegoat from verse 8. Azazel, the adversary, the antagonist. Aaron shall lay both, both of his hands. Now the sinner came, Bible says, and laid one hand on. He's laying both hands. I think it's significant. Laying both hands on the head of the live goat. Confess over him. Here we go again. All the iniquities of the children of Israel. All their transgressions in all their sins. So now, he doesn't say uncleanness. He says iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Putting them upon the head of the goat. And shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Now notice this. This is so vitally important. Verse 22. And the goat shall what? Bear upon him all their iniquities. Unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let goat the goat into the wilderness. Now, as an aside, what do you think would happen to a goat? Now, this is a, this is a pet. This goat has been, you know, cared for. What happens to that goat? You take it out into the wilderness and let it go. How long is it going to live? Not long. There's beasts out there. That thing didn't live long. It represents what's going to happen to Satan. Satan is going ultimately to be destroyed. He's going to be in a wilderness during the thousand years bound here on this planet with no one to sin because everyone's either been taken up or destroyed. We're in an evil world. We live in an evil world. We see crime, violence, all types of sin, everything imaginable, out of control. It's out of control. And then we find the reason for the scripture reading uh, this morning is actually the reason for what's happening. So I want to go there. I want to just to read that again. Ecclesiastes 8.11. 8, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts or the heart of the sons of men is fully set to do evil. So we have uh, in our nation an appeal process. So someone commits a heinous crime and they end up on death row. And they sit there at about $80,000 a year of your and my tax money. And they get better food than a lot of people. And they get better medical care than a lot of people. And 10 or 15 years later, after all the appeals have been done, the punishment is executed. It's not executed speedily. And what does that have to do with us? What was the sentence for evil in the sanctuary? It was immediate death, right? That animal died. I mean, it was confessed to sin. Boom. It was over. And the sinner could visualize, wow, sin results in death. Sin results in death. And it was horrible. Imagine, you got the cutest little lamb. And you're taking care of it. It's yours, most likely. I mean, yeah, you could buy them, but most likely you had it. It was yours. And, and it's like, oh. And so you do that, and the, the, the sentence is executed very speedily, and it's distasteful. And if you were sincere, you learned to despise sin, and you sensed the evilness of sin, and you recognized the sacrifice of Jesus. Does that happen today? No way. Jesus is about to leave the mercy seat, we're told. 
of the heavenly sanctuary to put on garments of vengeance and pour out his wrath in judgments upon those who have not responded to the light God has given them. So read Revelation chapter 15 and 16 and you'll see that. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Instead of being softened by the patience and long forbearance that the Lord has exercised toward them, those who fear not God and love not the truth strengthen their hearts in their evil course. But there are limits even to the forbearance of God and many are exceeding these boundaries. Overrun the limits of grace. And therefore God must interfere and vindicate his honor. Do you think some were softened by the execution of the innocent animal? I think so. I think that's really brought out in the New Testament. It became a business. It was so commonplace now doing the whole animal sacrifice thing. It became a business. So it, it, it could happen, and it can happen to us. I fear it's happened in, in our church, not individually, locally. I'm just saying, I, I fear that we've lost sight of how holy God is and how sinful sin is. In civil society, this is certainly true. In the world, this is true. They don't, in many of our liberal cities, you commit a crime, you're on the street. In an hour. And many of these people are repeating these crimes because what's the big deal, you know? So it's, there's no punishment, so they're, they're out of control. But I present to you that in the church, in the Christian world, the same is true. Living in sin continuously. It's saying, I can't get victory. Uh, nobody's perfect. I've heard that. And that's, that is, um, what does inspiration say? They place upon Christ the imputation of injustice. They call him a liar because he says, you can. Through my blood, my grace, my power, my word, you can have victory. So, so we got to be careful. Punishment is not implemented speedily on Christians. We can have murder in our hearts, deceit in our hearts, lust in our hearts. No punishment. No punishment. You could do that your whole life. I did it for 30 years. Before I became a Christian, nothing happened to me. So this is a serious thing. No repercussions. Heart is hardened, set to do evil. One sin leads to another and it becomes very easy. Miss church a week or two. See how easy it is to miss church the third week. And, you know, we're seeing that post-COVID. There are people who have told me I'm never coming back. Not because they were hurt. Not because they don't like church or the people in church. Stay home. I watch 3ABN. You know, it's a shame. It's a shame. In 2017, uh, a man from San Paulo, Brazil, he's a Seventh-day Adventist. His name is Marco. And he told this, he gave this testimony. He said he had a very vivid dream in which he found himself walking with a large number of people all of them walking in the same direction, four or five people wide. So you could picture a crowd walking this straight path, four or five wide, all heading in the same direction. Toward a man, he said, a man standing at the other end, 
And he says, as he got closer, he recognized the man, and so did the people next to him, as Jesus. They were walking towards Jesus. And he said, uh, the closer I got, I realized what was happening. This is the judgment. We're all being judged. And so they continued to walk. As each person approached Jesus, Jesus simply directed them in one of two directions, left or right, left being destruction, right being eternal life. He would say, you go left, you go left. And Marco said, he just kept saying, you go left, you go left. And every once in a while, he would say, you go right. That's scary. As he was getting closer, he started praying. Oh, when I get to Jesus, please, please, please let him direct me to the right. But to his dismay and utter shock, when he got there, Jesus told him to go left. And he knew what that meant. And he couldn't understand why he was lost in this dream. He couldn't understand it. He's, you know, he's thinking to himself, you know, I was raised in the church. I serve in the church. I have responsibilities in the church. Why did Jesus tell me to go left? And so he wrestled with these thoughts. And then an angel in the dream touched him on the shoulder and said, you were almost saved. And he said, why? You neglected the small details. And then Marco began to review his life. And the little things, the small details came to his mind. The music the movies, the choice of entertainment, lack of proper Sabbath keeping, ignoring the counsel of the spirit of prophecy, he said. And he wept. He said, I cried. I cried for my failure to pay attention to the small details. And he said, if only I could have another chance, I will strengthen, I will straighten out all the small details. The angel said, God has heard your prayer. You have a second chance. And he woke up. Immediately, he said, with a renewed vigor, and by God's grace, he began working on those little details, recognizing clearly that God is a God of details. He keeps perfect records, not to condemn, but to ensure heaven is a safe place and all those in heaven are happy there. And so... He wants to keep heaven free from sin, right? Nahum 1.9, affliction shall not rise up a second time. You know, um, this thought occurred to me. Um, you know, we've sent men to the moon, and we have a space station, orbits the earth. We've sent some probes way out, right? Voyager and other stuff. You ever wonder why we can't get to the nearest uh, solar system and habitable planet. I mean, it's so massively far away. I know why. Because sin is cancer. Sin is cancer. We're not going to be inhabiting another world before Jesus comes. It ain't going to happen. It's a cancer. And thank, thank the Lord, for the sake of the universe, it is contained on this little blue speck. Oh, I'm going to read something. I had a little note there to read to you. This is from Desire of Ages, page 311. God's idea for his children is higher than the highest human thought can reach. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. This command is a promise. 
You ever think of that? Those things that you read and you go, oh, that is so hard to attain. Remember, they're promises. That's a promise. The plan of redemption contemplates our complete recovery from the power of Satan. Right? We're in bondage. When we're in sin, we are in bondage to Satan. And every day he's trying to handcuff you and chain you up into sin. And so the plan of redemption, the story played out in the sanctuary, contemplates our complete recovery from the power of Satan. Christ always, she said, separates the contrite soul from sin. He who began a good work in you shall carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. That's also a promise. Professor Gain from Andrews, um, he said this. I I mentioned this, I think, the first uh, message in this series. He said, we could say that God is allergic to sin. If we want to have a friendship with someone who is allergic to something you have, what do you do if you're serious about the relationship? And he doesn't answer. It's a rhetorical question, right? We have to give up what God is allergic to. He's allergic to sin. He can't, it cannot be in his presence. That's why Aaron had to have that, that uh, censer full of incense, smoke. It protected him. God cannot be. Man can't be in the presence of God. Sinful man. So it means that we have to look at the details. Remember, by faith we receive grace sufficient to overcome all defects of character. By grace, by God's grace, through faith, we receive the power to overcome all defects of character. We less amens that time. Really, that's a powerful, important, and encouraging thing. It's there. It's available to us. And so I want to invite you to either come forward or kneel where you are. And let's, let's have a heartfelt prayer uh, regarding this. I think this is so, so important in, in these uh, very short days in which we're in. Loving Heavenly Father, we're uh, in awe of how great you are, and we're so thankful uh, that we can bow before you right now. And because of what Jesus did, we're able to come into your immediate presence. Hebrews tells us we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We're doing that right now. We're not barging in. That's not what that word means, but we um, are exercising by faith an invitation Uh, to come to you through prayer to say, Lord, we are not there yet. We haven't attained. Um, We probably uh, wouldn't be safe in heaven. We need cleansing. You want to give that free uh, to each one of us. So by faith, we, young and old, young people are here today. Um, We we want to surrender our hearts to you and say, Lord, show us the, the little things. Of course, the big things, but Lord, there's little details that need to be worked out. Um, Show us. And then by faith, we'll accept your grace, your power, the blood of Jesus to overcome those things, those defaults of character. You are the potter, we're the clay. You, You desire to refine us and polish us, to present us to a fallen world as representatives of Jesus 
and then to welcome us in, good and faithful servants into the kingdom of heaven, not because we've done anything to earn it, but because we've, we've chosen to trust you and to be obedient. Bless each person here, each family represented, all those that are listening or will listen and watch online. May they have an experience with Jesus like never before. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.